What's up, guys? Ryan Horn here, and welcome to the Extraordinary Man Podcast. This is the one and only podcast specifically designed to help married businessmen create more profit and purpose in their business without sacrificing their family, health, or marriage in the process. Each week, I interview some of the world's most extraordinary men, including seven- and eight-figure entrepreneurs, elite athletes, best-selling authors, and world-class speakers. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Jeremy Stein. Jeremy is the head of educational content development and a teaching strategist with the Centers for Holy Land Studies. He was born in Dansville, New York in 1991 and raised on Long Island, New York. In 2013, he completed his BA in biblical theology as well as in pastoral ministries at North Point Bible College, formerly known as Zion Bible College. In 2016, he married his wife, Miriam. In 2019, he earned an MA in ancient Judaism and the origins of Christianity from Nyack College in New York, New York. Jeremy is the former associate pastor of Neighborhood Assembly of God in Belmore, New York. He has been a licensed minister with the Assemblies of God since 2011 and has been actively traveling to the Holy Lands for the past five years. Jeremy and his wife, Miriam, currently live in Springfield, Missouri. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. How are you doing today? It's great to be here. I'm, I'm doing all right today. Yeah, you know, I just want to take a minute to honor you before we get started because so for all the listeners out there, Jeremy was the lead teacher on the 14-day trip that uh, I went on to Turkey and Greece. And man, you went way above and beyond just time and time again and made the trip amazing. And the things you shared were absolutely mind-blowing and life-changing. And I'm excited for the listeners to get a little piece of that today as well. I want you to know how much I appreciate you and uh, just how much impact the trip had on me personally. So thank thank you. you. No, thank you. Thank you. I was, it was awesome getting to travel lands of the Bible with you. I thoroughly enjoy what I get to do and just unpacking the biblical world so that people can understand the word of God in a completely different light than normally what you'd be able to do either in a church pew or in a classroom. Absolutely. So I'd love if we could dive in just a little bit to your backstory and you know, how did you end up leading trips to the Holy Lands? So I, when I was in college, they offered uh, a trip with the Center for Holy Land Studies that went to Israel. And it was a month-long trip that went into incredible detail of the lands of the Bible. Um, and I went on that as kind of my graduation present to myself. And I was absolutely blown away by it. Uh, it's funny because I got engaged on that trip and I just um, thought my life was going in one direction. And then I went on this and everything changed. And I decided, wow, this is really what I want to do. You know, the way that the Bible has been opened up to me this way, I'd love to do that for other people. So as soon as I got home, I signed up for a, a very competitive MA program in order to learn how to do this. And I, uh, by the grace of God, got into it and learned how to do this and started uh, teaching for the Center for Oil and Studies uh, as early back as 2015 and just started kind of learning little by little how to teach. And then I started doing this full time in 2017 and uh, expanding my knowledge of the biblical world over that time, going beyond just Israel, but doing Turkey, Greece, Italy, Jordan. Now we're adding Cyprus and Egypt to our places that we go and we teach and just looking at the biblical landscape as a whole and looking at it through um, these lenses of looking at the culture, the history, the landscape, and the spirituality of uh, the ancient world. And uh, I was just drawn to it and have never looked back since. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Your passion for this is, is evident. So for people that don't know anything about the Centers for Holy Land Studies, what is it and what is their mission? So we are a department of the Assemblies of God, a denomination, the Pentecostal world based out of Springfield, Missouri. And our hope or really our desire is to bring people to the lands of the Bible in order to study their Bibles in context in the land, in order that they can come back and change the dynamic and the cultures of our church to be more biblically literate, to be more engaged with the Bible, to understand it better so that then we can teach it and preach it and share it more effectively. And nobody is off our radar or our desire to expand the biblical world to our largest focus is to those young people who are going into ministry because we believe that we can change the next generation, the culture of the pulpit, the culture of the everyday layman. When people are young, then we'll have a longer impact. However, we also understand that when somebody is even 70, 80, or 90 years old, we've had on our trips that there's still a role until that day that we take our last breath that God has for us. And our desire is to eventually see this trickle-down effect of someone coming to the land and learning about the realities of the Bible. So that's not just a book written a long time ago in a land far, far away, but it's something that's still living, still breathing, still talking to us and being able to then effectively relate that in our own missions field of our day-to-day lives. So cool. I love that. All right. I'm really excited because next I want you to give our listeners just an overview of the 14-day trip we were on in Greece and Turkey. And maybe if you could just share a little bit of each of the locations. Sure thing. Sure thing. So we started up in what's now modern day Northern Greece. However, inside the biblical world, the names are not transferable oftentimes to the modern day. And so we have to understand kind of what's being said in the biblical world. So we're talking about the biblical world, the New Testament Macedonia, which is where we find Paul being called to, and really the heart of Acts 16, Acts 17, where Paul is ministering in cities like Berea, like Thessalonica, like Philippi. This is, and and these are the places that we went up there. If we, uh, when we went to Berea, although there's not a whole lot of ancient Berea still there, there's still much to learn. And so there we unpacked Paul and the Berean church, the church that when Paul goes there and preaches, they don't take him at face value. Instead, they sit down there and they study the scriptures and they examine what Paul's saying to see if it's true. And it's counted unto them as righteousness. And so examining not so much the actual physical material that we see left over from them, but their example nonetheless and how it impacts us today. And then we went to Thessalonica, which uh, or, or modern day Thessaloniki, um, which is a modern, like a beautiful, bustling city. Um, it's one of the most populated cities in Greece. And there's once again, not a whole lot left of that city, but we took some time to go to uh, the remains and talk about the reality of not only what we find inside the book of Acts when Paul is there, but more importantly, the book of First and Second Thessalonians, um, two letters that Paul had written to the church there, which laid the groundwork for our understanding of what we we're going to uh, visit more uh, in Turkey, which was the book of Revelation. And so, and, and we, on top of that, we also did Philippi, which there's tons of remains left. We get to see basically the first century city and 
And although we don't actually know half the places, like there's a place where you go where um, you'll have some that will claim this is the prison that Paul was in. However, there's no archaeological evidence to point us in that way. We still have the uh, ability to walk the same streets that Paul would have walked while he was there and break down the narrative that we find there where Paul in, and Silas are both dragged into prison and beaten without any type of question because they're Jews. And then it comes to find out that although they are Jews, they had the uncommon reality for Jews of being Roman citizens and, and really diving in into what that means, because it actually explains a lot about Paul and probably why God chooses him, this man who sought to kill the church, sought to, to seek them out because he was zealous for God, as he says in his own words, but why God chose him to be his missionary uh, to the world of Asia Minor and, uh, and, and Greece and eventually Rome and possibly even Spain. And so from that point on, we moved out of the land of Macedonia into uh, modern day Turkey, which inside the biblical world has multiple different names. We find it as Anatolia. We find it most commonly in the New Testament period as Asia or Asia Minor. And we find other kingdoms such as Assyria, such as the Hittites, people that we're familiar with inside the Old Testament narratives inhabiting that land. And we started uh, with a very interesting place. We started with the biblical city of Troy, which is one of my favorite places to go to because I say biblical city and People kind of have a little bit of a pause there because everybody thinks, you know, Troy, it's famous for Homer and the Iliad and the Trojan War with Achilles and Hector and Odysseus. But when we look at the realities of what took place there, we actually find that bleed over into the Old Testament narrative. We find incredible similarities between 1 Samuel 17 and the book of Judges and even 2 Samuel. And I wish I could go into to further detail with it, but if you want to hear that one, you got to come on a trip to, to Turkey with me. But seeing that bleed over, and understand that the Bible is not written in a vacuum. The uh, biblical authors are very well aware of the world. They weren't just these kind of as portrayed sometimes by uh, the secular world as these mindless um, robots who are just writing the quote unquote will of God. They're, they're interacting with their culture. They're, they're knowing their world. And then from there, we also, uh, in our days, we went to Alexandra Troas, which is right nearby, which we find is one of the places that Paul goes multiple times. Uh, probably one of my favorite times that he's there is uh, when he's on his way home in Acts 20. Um, we find him preaching there into the dead hours of the night to the point that he actually kills somebody. Um, a young man by the name of Eutychus falls asleep and falls out the window. And so just getting to also look at that and understand, too, that this is this place where Paul is at and he's planning on going one place and God says, nope, you're not going there. We're going somewhere else uh, is uh, just a, a beautiful narrative sometimes about our own lives. And from there, we headed to the city of Assos, which is a beautiful city. It overlooks the island of Lesbos and the Aegean Sea. But most importantly, it has a small temple from the Old Testament period that was uh, partially constructed by or given the money to be constructed by a leader who we see inside the Old Testament, a man by the name of Cyrus the Great, who also allows the Jewish people to, after they've been removed from the land of Israel by the Babylonians, uh, who then fall to the Persians, this same Persian king allows them to go back and rebuild their world as a client kingdom of the Persian empire. But we see that similarity in the reality that this is what he was doing all over the empire. And so it speaks to the historicity of the Old Testament. From there, uh, we, we kind of started heading inland, which was exciting because then we started looking at the churches of 
the book of Revelation. When you open up the, the book of Revelation, we find that although it is written to a vast audience, which includes ourselves, the original recipients, those who were handed this original work by John of Patmos, uh, were not us. They were these seven churches um, that we find then also having smaller individual letters that were written to them and that highlighted their problems as well as highlighted their victories in some aspects and highlighted the things that they needed to do to get right with God, um, at least five of the, out of the seven of them, and gave them warnings and, and gave them just an understanding of the world that they were living in. Because when you look at the realities of the first century church, say I'm in one city, my realities probably aren't the same as somebody else in another city because Christianity was still so new and how the Roman Empire understood it was vastly different and how the Jewish world understood it because it was birthed out of the the Jewish world. Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews who then begins being preached to the Gentiles. Jesus himself was Jewish. His original followers uh, are Jewish. And so when we start seeing how the Jewish community reacts to it, sometimes it's very positively, such as in the book of Acts, when we see someone like Gamaliel, who stands up and defends the, he's the head of the Pharisees. He defends the church where you have others like Paul, who's also a Pharisee, but goes to the Sadducees in order to try to attack the church because he's not getting the uh, acceptance inside the Pharisaic realm that he wants to attack the church. And so the same thing could have been said about any of these cities. And so we started from that point on going in and looking at these cities. And the very first one that we went to was Pergamum, which is an absolute amazing city. It's high up on this random mountain in the middle of a valley that you can just see miles and miles away. And while we were there, we broke down the realities that that church, which was being persecuted, uh, but yet still living in sin had faced in its day where it has possibly even its pastor, a man by the name of Antipas has already been put to death by that point. And yet you have those who were uh, following Gnosticism, living lives contrary to the gospels and falling prey to it. And then from there, we, we continued on our path of looking at these seven churches. We went to uh, Sardis. We went to Philadelphia. We went to Thyatira. Uh, Sardis is, is a gorgeous city. Wow. There's so much to see of it there. There's a beautiful temple of Artemis. However, Philadelphia and Thyatira, there's only one block in a city left. And in Philadelphia, ancient Philadelphia, there's only a single building from uh, the fifth, sixth century AD. So years, years after um, the first century church had long died off. And so it doesn't, although it doesn't give us a true understanding of the first century world in the physical sense, once again, like Berea, we still sit down there each and every site and we unpack the text and we speak for as long as it takes to truly understand what it means. Sometimes we'll just sit there and read through it and it'll take us 20 minutes to read through seven verses. Sometimes it might take us an hour to read through it and to truly understand it. Um, but that's just the reality of understanding God's word. And that's what makes uh, what we do so vastly different than most other trips. So many other trips to the land of the Bible um, look to take you to the quote unquote traditional sites. For, for me, the idea is I don't care about the tradition. I care about the reality of the text and where is it going to come alive to us or where are we going to connect with it the closest, even if there's just one city block left of it. I want to see that, but then I want to understand what the text itself is saying, because when we become people of the story or people of the tradition rather than people of the text, um, this is how we start having 
misunderstandings about scripture and how we start changing our preconceived notions. And the idea is never to have these conceived notions is to look at the text and say, what does God's word specifically say? And that kind of comes around full circle to what the Bereans were doing is that Paul, the most, one of the most eloquent and uh, amazing teachers of the new Testament comes among their midst and they didn't take him at face value. And that was considered a good thing because they wanted to know the more important authority, God's word, what it said. When we go to those, it doesn't matter sometimes if there's only one city block like in Philadelphia. It matters the words that were spoken to that church. And, and one of my favorite things that I love doing, and, and you'll remember this, Ryan, is when we went to the gravestone that had in Greek the word Philadelphia. For me, that just gives me goosebumps because you know it's the place and you know that the people there, they had a, a letter from God. And that letter to that church was something very specific. It was, hey, you're doing everything right. You are living the way that I have commanded you to. Um, but then we also find kind of a, a reality that we see historically that they were going to continue to be persecuted nonetheless. So then from there, we continued inland and we went to uh, a few more biblical sites. One of the sites being Colossae, which has yet to be excavated. I'd love to be on the team that excavates that. But we went up on the, the mound, and although the real city, the city that Paul knew, the city that he, he wrote to was 20, 30, maybe 40 feet beneath uh, our own feet, it was still uh, amazing to just stand there and to talk about what's going on, not only in the letter to the Colossians, but even possibly to the, the letter that we call to the letter uh, of the Ephesians, but most importantly to Paul's shortest letter, the letter of Philemon, because I feel like there you get the best view of who Paul is and how he understands himself and understands each of our relationships to one another as being subject to one another because we are subject to God because he subjected himself for us, for our wrath first. And so I just love breaking that up and then going, heading back to one of our seven churches, heading over to uh, the church of Laodicea and seeing that and the, the beautiful remains there um, that are still being excavated and seeing a church that was hidden inside a house um, that was hidden deep inside um, with a ichthus uh, right outside the door. So other Christians who were searching for the church, but didn't know where to look would Go, but then also the beautiful church from the fourth century, right after Christianity was legalized, and understanding the possible redemptive story of the church of Laodicea, the church who had nothing good to be said about them, yet was standing tall and was a beacon of hope by the days that Christianity was legalized. And then we did something pretty fun for the rest of the day there. We went to a place called Hierapolis, which is an ancient Roman city. We see it being mentioned inside the New Testament. We don't have any letters there. But while we were there, we got to go to uh, what's called Cleopatra's bath, which is an ancient, uh, what's called an Asclepion, which was a, uh, temple or a place of healing inside the ancient world that was dedicated to the goddess Asclepius. that people would go in this water and they miraculously feel better. Well, now living in the modern age, we know that there's a minor radon leak and the water is slightly radioactive. And so it gives us an understanding of what's going on and why people inside the pagan world are looking for healings and understanding healings and things like that. Like we see even inside the Jewish world too, inside John's gospel, the pool of Bethesda. Um, but then we also got to go to one of the modern wonders of the world, one of the most beautiful places called Pamukkale. And if uh, you're curious what that is, I just encourage you right now, pause this, Google it. Um, be blown away by it because it's just absolutely gorgeous. There's nothing biblical about it, but sometimes it's just nice to sit back and look at God's creation and, and see that he makes all things beautiful. 
And then from there, we, we started heading back to the coast and we stopped at two places that most people don't know. Most trips don't ever go to. They kind of get skipped over. One of them is biblical. One of them is not mentioned in the New Testament, but it, it changes our perspective on the New Testament. Uh, the one that's biblical is a place called Miletus. And it's the place where Paul met with the Ephesian elders. And he sat there and he talked with them and gave them his final message, knowing that he was never going to see them again. And this is Ephesus is the place where Paul spent the largest majority of his ministry, he stays there three, maybe even three and a half years amongst their midst. And he's chased out of the city because of a riot at the temple of Artemis and in the theater. And he knows that this will be the last time he ever speaks to his most trusted disciples, his most trusted church. And so when we understand what Paul sacrifices in order to have that conversation with them, we look at the time period that's given in the book of Acts, understanding what Paul's goal is, as well as looking at the words themselves, we see the importance of Paul's heart of delivering this message. And it kind of puts a pause in my spirit and hopefully all of our spirits of things that we need to look out for, for ourselves in ministry, because Luke wouldn't have included it inside the book of Acts if it wasn't important, if it was just a message for these elders. And then from there, we went to a place called Didyma, which is the largest standing Greek slash Roman temple that exists today. It was the sister temple to the largest temple, which was the temple of Artemis, the one we see in Acts 19. But that temple no longer exists. It was torn down by what I would call Christian fanatics. And that's just coming from the archaeological standpoint. I understand why they did it because it's paganism. They wanted to rid the world of paganism. I just love the beauty of some of these ancient temples after they're excavated. Um, but that's just me. But there's there's nothing left of it except for one pillar that is not even a true pillar because it's just random pieces that were stuck together and stacked back on top of each other. So we have no understanding of how beautiful this temple, which was one of the ancient wonders of the world. You have seven ancient wonders of the world that were proclaimed by Antipater of Sidon in the second century. And this was one of them. It was beautiful. It was magnificent in the ancient days. And it's what is the center of the riot that takes place in Acts 19. And we have no understanding of what it is unless we go to Didyma, which literally means the twin, which was the temple to Apollo, the Artemis's twin brother inside Greek mythology. And his temple was almost an exact replica minus a few pillars. And so by walking through that, we understand the size and the grandeur. And every single time I'm just blown away by how much money it would have taken to keep something like that running, let alone build it. And then we start to understand, all right, why are the people who are attacking Paul in Ephesus why are they so concerned with the money that's coming into the temple that's now disappearing? Because every time someone comes into a relationship with Christ, not only do they lose a dedicated person in their temple, but they also lose a customer on the daily basis. And so getting to stand amongst those pillars and walk around there uh, is, is, for me, one of my favorite things I get to do on any trip. And then uh, from there, we headed to the coast and we headed to Ephesus, one of the most excavated cities inside the ancient world and the place that, like I said, Paul spent so much of his time. And we get to see the Agora where we know Paul would have worked for that time because he was a tent maker. We see that during his time in Corinth and we see that according to the text, he never really leaves the city yet. That's where he's sending out missionaries and he's teaching in the halls of Tyrannus, which are probably a precursor to what we see as the famous library of Ephesus there. And we get to go to the theater and know that this is the place where two of Paul's companions are brought in and questioned by this riot, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, and just kind of walk through Paul's world and then walk through the houses, which have been so beautifully preserved and understanding the reality that the church inside the first century, the way that we think about it is not 
a church building, but it was individual homes. Like I just said in, in Laodicea, um, people that were just meeting. And so walking through those homes and understand that those are hallowed grounds. Those are people who at one point or another were persecuted because we see that the persecution doesn't end once Paul leaves the city. It seems to continue uh, in what we see inside the, the letter to the church. And so those are the homes. Those are the places where they met in secret, in private, um, in order to be able to continue to worship God. And that basically concluded our time in Turkey. And then from there, we went to Izmir, which was modern day Smyrna, the, the final of the seven churches there. And we flew to Athens. We went back to Greece, but now actual biblical Greece, as we know it. And in Athens, we went to the Parthenon and talked about the book of Esther and its connection uh, with that specific building, but also the reality that without Athens and being the city, the great city that it was, you don't have the realities of the book of Esther playing out. Then from there, we went to Mars Hill and the Agora, which we find Acts 7. Paul delivers his most beautiful sermon, in my opinion, but the true, I think, uh, view into Paul and who he is as a Roman citizen Greek. Um, remember, Paul's not from the land of Israel originally, he, though he learns there. He is a Jew from Tarsus, which is once again inside modern day Turkey. And he knows the Greek and Roman world. He knows their literature and there he uses it ever so beautifully in a way that I'd love to explain here, but then I'd give away my whole lecture on Mars Hill. But there's something so unique about what Paul does that we miss out because we don't understand the the world of the ancients. We don't understand uh, the world of Hesiod or Eumenides and their writings and and, and what they meant inside uh, the ancient world. And, and so we got to look at that and then we got to close our trip off by going to Corinth, probably Paul's uh, previously to Ephesus, the place that Paul then spends the most amount of time, the place where Apollos comes and is based out of, the place where Aquila and Priscilla meet Paul, the place where he's doing ministry for two years. But most importantly, uh, two of our most doctrinal letters inside the New Testament, apart from Romans and Galatians, would then be First and Second Corinthians, and unpacking those and unpacking that specific church, because there's so much that speaks into it, especially as Pentecostals, as those who seek the Holy Spirit, understanding the gifts of the Spirit that we find laid out in 1 Corinthians, but also understanding what it is to be a church, to love one another with that agape love. And at that point, we had talked about that because we find uh, the church of Ephesus had lost its love and the church of Thyatira had lost its love. Finally, breaking that down and seeing what Paul meant by all of this when he's writing it and probably later on what John of Patmos is referring to, this agape love, and then ending our time at the port there uh, at Sencrie and just asking ourselves, you know what, this is where Paul makes a vow to God that and he, he says, I'm going to promise you that I'm going to cut my hair. I'm going to shave my head. I'm not going to do it until this missionary journey is complete. And I'll offer this up as a, a sacrifice of the temple. And we just are left with that question is as we leave these trips, as we leave this land, what are we promising God to do with the knowledge and the ministry experience that we've had uh, from that trip? And then that was a, uh, that was a full two weeks right there. Incredible. This is amazing. I love just listening to you here. I've got two more pages of notes and uh, just you're taking me back. Absolutely amazing. So much that you shared. Could you maybe give an example of, of something that you can't really fully understand or appreciate unless you're actually there? The Temple of Didyma. You can't understand the pagan world and what the Christians were truly up against, what it meant to truly proclaim that Jesus is Lord, because that then you're claiming that Caesar is not, that all of these other gods and goddesses that the polytheistic world of the Roman Empire was proclaiming. Um, you don't understand the power and the influence that 
the pagan world held against the church until you walk through that. But then you also too then realize the true power of the church because they were able to overcome and outlast all of that by their faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. You can never get that experience just trying to read it or just going through uh, Google images or something like that until you walk there and you touch these beautiful pillars and you see how massive they are and how ornately carved they are and just see how many of them there, there were and see their their true height compared to yourself. You don't get that experience anywhere else. It's impossible to replicate that unless you're there. Yeah, I 100% agree. I was blown away when we went there, just how massive those pillars were and just how massive the entire temple was. I'm curious. So what would you say are some of your favorite sites within the Holy Lands and not just Turkey and Greece where we went? Didyma, I know, as you mentioned, is one of your favorites, but all across the Holy Lands, what would you say are some of the, the highlights for you? Didyma is, is hands down my favorite and, and my leadest. Both of those are huge. I love Pompeii especially it's one of the places we go to now it, the, the eruption that takes place there is, is right at the end of the new Testament period. But when walking through Pompeii, it's another one of those sites that you truly can't grasp the realities of how sexually immoral and how lacking of morals the pagan Roman world was until you walk through that city, because it's stuck as a time capsule of the first century. Once it was buried in its cloud of ash in uh, the the end of the first century, it was never resettled like so many other cities. Like if you go to Troy, Troy has multiple different layers that have been resettled generation after generation after generation and built on top of one another. Pompeii is not one of that. So what you see every time you're excavating that is that you're seeing true on first century reality, things that the early church was being written to in the New Testament period would have understood and the sexual debauchery was just so in your face when you just have brothels that they found ways that they could communicate with how to make business with people who didn't speak their language and people who um, needed a, a different money system. And on top of that, then you also find some beautiful relationships of a slave to a master and kind of connect that to us being as Paul describes, doulos or slaves of, of Christ. And so um, I just love Pompeii. And in uh, the land of Israel, there are so many, but one of them I'd have to say would be Ein Avdat, which is the wilderness of Zin. Um, it's the place where the Israelites grumble against Moses and God. Um, when Moses is told to speak to the rock and water will come out and he strikes the rock instead. Um, I just love that because it opens up the biblical world so much more than we think, because what's taking place there is in all reality, a geological uh, problem rather than a theological or uh, physiological reality. It, it's, it's so beautiful that only people who sit down and study it, um, apart from those who grow up in the land, who know what's going on, truly understand. And so for me, walking through there and saying, hey, you know, if you, if you take a staff right here and you hit this rock, I'm not Moses, I'm not Aaron, I'm not anybody special, but guess what? I'll tell you that water's going to come out of it. But if I speak to it, water ain't going to come out, which then tells us the problem, the true problem with Moses right there and why, why what he does is wrong. Because earlier on, he also hits a rock with the staff and water comes out that once again, ties in this whole geological reality rather than anything else. So yeah, those are a few of my favorite places. I find every place to one degree or another that has biblical uh, context or biblical connection fascinating. Um, just so because 
you see the realities of God's word still ringing true thousands upon thousands of years after they were ever written. Amazing. Yeah. You've got me excited to go to Italy and Israel and everywhere, everywhere that you go. Before we started, I was showing you, I just got uh, some of your books that you've written about experiencing Israel and Italy and already had Turkey and Greece. Absolutely amazing. I'm curious, like, what are some of the biggest myths or false beliefs that you hear from people about the Holy Lands or maybe even specific biblical sites? Oh, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot. I'll put it that way. One of my biggest, my biggest ones is how we've almost made mythology out of First Samuel 17 when it's so deeply connected to mythology. That's one of my ones that when, when I hear sometimes people preaching it and speaking it and understanding what's truly being said and understanding First and Second Samuel in their context, that's one of them because I'll be the first to say, and, and you can go on a trip with me to, to learn the realities of it, but David is never the one who's supposed to be fighting Goliath because the Israelites have a giant among their midst. Saul is the one who's supposed to be doing it. And the whole story, yes, it still makes David look like a hero, but the intention isn't necessarily to always make David the hero. It's it's the also the intention of uh, making Saul look bad or, or look to who he really is, because you have the book of Judges serving as an apologetic as this is why Israel needed a king, because they went through this uh, cycle of Judges again and again. But then first and second Samuel is the apologetic of, oh, wait, we had a king. He was bad. This is why this new family are the kings now and why they should be in power. And so um, looking at that in its context is a blast. But also, I, I actually say probably my my favorite one of my biggest pet peeve is Jonah. There's a place where we talk about Jonah specifically, this place called Lachish, which was uh, a city that was absolutely brutalized by the Assyrians. Um, and we know what happened there because they decorated their palace in what's called the, the Lachish Reliefs, which proclaim what they did to the Israelites there. And understanding Jonah in that context, but also understanding Jonah not as a myth, the way that we make him oftentimes, but in the, the sense that he's actually written and the story is portrayed to us because Jonah has very, very few, if any, redeeming aspects of it. And yet we've made him out to be this great hero uh, sometimes. I'm, I'm a big fan of the VeggieTales movie of Jonah, but that's not the way it went down. It's not the way that the text portrays it. And so anytime for me, when you're at a site and you can see where the Bible says one thing, but our tradition has deviated from that, I'd say any one of those are the ones that, that drive me uh, up a wall sometimes. So you mentioned a little bit about archaeology before you are a licensed archaeologist. Like, What are a few of the exciting things that are happening in, in that field? So there's, there's a lot taking place. So there are two digs that are active right now at the Center for Holy Land Studies uh, is and has been involved with. Uh, currently right now, I am working at Shiloh, biblical Shiloh, as, as many will pronounce it. Um, which was the place where you find the tabernacle resting following Israelites' conquest of the land of Israel before the foundation of Jerusalem and the temple that is there. It's where you find uh, Samuel growing up and the whole uh, accounts with uh, Eli, the high priest, who is God is calling Samuel at night and he believes that it's Eli. And then Eli finally says, oh, wait, no, this is uh God. And so when you hear the voice again, answer, uh, yes, Lord, uh, what do you desire of me? So we're excavating there um, to understand more about that city. And some of the things that we're uh, finding there have been fascinating. 
we've uncovered a lot of Roman remains and, and, and things that we uh, didn't really know about the Roman uh, settlements of the city, but also um, looking at the early Iron Age and the Bronze Ages uh, of the city to understand what was the Shiloh that Samuel knew and how did the tabernacle operate? Was it fixed in one place? Did it move around the site? Um, and so being involved in that has been a absolute blast. And we've had uh, university students from all over the Assemblies of God, from Vanguard University, Evangel, North Central, um, up by you. They've all joined in um, on this team and it's been a blast. And then um, there's another excavation that uh, up in the north on the shore of the Sea of Galilee called El Araj that is uh, believed to be biblical Bethsaida, currently the head of the archaeological uh, excavations that are taking place there uh, are under uh, two close friends. One of them is actually uh, my uh, overseer for my master's degree, a man by the name of R. Stephen Notley from Nyack College. And he's leading this to prove that there's one site that has already claimed to be Bethsaida, but it doesn't make sense. But now it looks more and more like this is the city that uh, or the village that we find being described to us in the New Testament. And just the week before we did this trip, about three weeks ago now, we were at the site and Dr. Notley was telling us that they found an inscription. And in the inscription, it looked like it was connecting it to the church that we find would have been built there that early Christian pilgrims tell us about a few hundred years after the Bible. And so it basically is confirming the original hypothesis that was placed out there. And so uh, one of one of the, the joys for the Center for Holy Land Studies is that we funded the original shovel survey and the original uh, few years of that excavation and to see where it has gone under the stewardship of Nyack College and, and Dr. Notley and under Canaric College uh, right there on the southern end of the Sea of Galilee is just uh, amazing. And we look forward to seeing much more of the excavations that take place there. It's one of those ones that is just kind of uh, at the, the out front of all excavations right now, um, kind of creating that buzz. That's so cool. Yeah. The current stuff that is happening and being discovered as we speak, that's, that's really, really awesome. So do you believe that every Christian should make an effort to go to the Holy Lands? And if so, why? Absolutely. There's nothing more or that should be more important to us than our faith and our understanding inside God's word. We are commanded by Christ and what we call the Great Commission to go out and to make disciples. And one of the most important things to us should be the continually nagging question in our lives. How do I go and make better disciples? How, how do I master this? I'll never truly master it because the only person who is capable of truly making the perfect disciple is going to be Christ. And, and in my opinion, that perfect disciple doesn't come until I die and I rid myself of this world. I, I fall, I, I, I flounder at times, but the constant idea of bettering ourselves to make better disciples and to do our job that has been commanded of us with utmost intensity and utmost care um, should always be at the forefront of our list. And if I wholeheartedly believe that one of the ways that you do that is by going to the lens of the Bible, is by understanding the Bible in its context, because then it changes the Bible. Like I said, it becomes alive to us. And when it becomes alive to us, we just radiate that. 
that you don't have those questions so much or that sometimes that lingering doubt, there are things that you now know, things that are ingrained in your faith that people can't take away. And we always joke inside our office is that the, the best form of advertising people to go to the lands is people who have gone to the lands because people come home from these trips and others inside their church, others inside their pews, they just look at them and they see that something is different. They understand that these people have been changed. It's, it's, uh, it's almost like when you, when you encounter someone who has just been freshly baptized with the Holy spirit, you look at that person, you're saying, Whoa, there's something different about you. Similarly, also right after we get saved, there's something different about you. People go to the lands and they come back and others immediately say, Whoa, Whoa, wait, how'd you get from point A to point B? I, I, I want this. I want to see this. And that's just the reality of, uh, what happens. And uh, so I think absolutely it is an integral part of every Christian's journey to better themselves as they were called to be going to the lance. And, and you know, you, you see the requirement of it placed on people in Islam, for example, to, to make Hajj to Mecca. Um, and even in Judaism, you're required three times a year to appear before the Lord in the temple. Uh, I, I, Listen, I don't think that we're, I think we're selling ourselves short in some aspects by not going to the lands or choosing not to go to the lands because we miss out on so much of what God has for us. And so that's kind of my pitch of go. I, 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 it doesn't even matter sometimes if, if I'm the one who gets to go with someone or not, I'm just happy so often when I hear people go to the lands, because I know that experience is so life-changing because it was the case for me. Yeah, absolutely. Great answer. It was 100% life-changing for me and Brittany, and we have not been able to stop telling everybody we see all about it and absolutely amazing. So uh, if somebody wanted to go to the Holy Land and they could only go to one place and not Israel, where would you tell them to go? I would say Turkey. If you're going to if you're gonna go anywhere and it can't be Israel, Turkey is so loaded with Bible and we don't often realize it. It is so central to the New Testament. Once once you get out of the lands, the, the command given to the church is go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Once you pass Samaria, Turkey is the ends of the earth inside the first century. And that's where you have so much going on. So if you only have one other place to go, it's Turkey, because then you get to see the realities of your Bible playing out in front of you. You get to know God's word so much deeper by going there. Yeah, Turkey was absolutely mind-blowing. I think most people are surprised by how much of the New Testament takes place mm-hmm. in Turkey. I definitely was. And it was incredible. I agree. All right. So this is the Extraordinary Man podcast. So I would like to end by asking you, Jeremy, what is your definition of an extraordinary man? I got two. Firstly, my dad. Secondly, um, I would say the person who continues doing what God has called them to do when it goes unnoticed or when it goes unthanked or when things just always seem dark because of it. One of the things that we often think, and I, I put this in contrast with the, the world of the first century is that there's so many heroes of the first century faith that we don't know their names. We don't know their stories, but their faith still impacts us today whether it's corporately or whether it's through this long generational chain of believers. I talked about the guy from Pergamum who was put to death, uh, Antipas, and he's one of many in the New Testament. We know his name, but there are so many who died for their faith, who created and paved that way for us to be able to share our faith continually 
uh, in the world that we live in that nobody will ever know their name. Nobody will uh, know their story. But for me, that is uh, that right there is, is an incredible and extraordinary man or, or, or even woman or, or, or just believer in that aspect. Really great answer. I love that. So where can people go to find out more about going on trips to the Holy Lands? You can, if you Google the Center for Holy Land Studies, we will come right up. We'll be the first ones. But if you go to thechls.org, you'll have our full website right up there. Um, and there are plenty of ways you can contact us up there. Um, you can see our tours. Um, we have tours right now that are going all the way through 2023 that are that are booking up, but there's constantly updated or even look to, to create your own if, if there are more than multiple people that want to do it. Also, email me. I'm perfectly fine always giving out my email address. It's jstein at ag.org. And uh, we're always willing to give more information there. And on top of that, we have, uh, if, if you're just kind of that, that visual learner that wants to just read up more, we have plenty of resources through our uh, website. Um, there's a, multiple different books, like you said, the Experience Israel, Experience uh, Turkey, Greece, Italy, um, all of those books. And we also have a 12-week st uh, study called Foundations that goes through the land of Turkey that's filmed on site in uh, eight to 15 minute sessions um, with questions and study guides that go along with all of that. And so there are plenty of different routes and uh, ways to get connected with us and to understand what it is that we do and, and experience it through one lens or another. Awesome. Yeah. I'll make sure there's links to all of that on the show notes down below. And yeah, I have all four of the books. I have the foundations series, anything else you put out, I'm going to get immediately. It's all <laughs> Which is your favorite of the books so far? Oh my gosh. That's, uh, I, I can't answer that question. I haven't read the <laughs> one yet, but they're, they're all incredible. Um, oh. And now having been to Greece and Turkey, reading through uh, the Greece and Turkey books, everything makes a lot more sense and uh, is just really, really cool. So they're all awesome. Just get all of them. Uh, the Jordan one's coming out sooner rather than later. Awesome. I'll, I'll be first in line. <laughs> all right. Well, Jeremy, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Guys, thanks so much for joining me on another episode of the Extraordinary Man podcast. Here's the thing, you're never going to maximize your potential on your own. So I'm personally inviting you to come and join me in the private Extraordinary Man Facebook group so you can level up your business and your life. Just head over to Facebook and type Extraordinary Man into the search box and it will show up as the first result. Iron sharpens iron and this is the number one place for you to connect with me and other like-minded men who are on a mission to maximize their potential. My goal is to help you become the man God created you to be in all areas of your life. So come and join us in the Facebook group and upgrade your business and your life. I'll see you on the next episode.